This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. The number of Greco-Roman religions were only for one gender, particularly a male gender, so that made Christianity distinctive as well. So James, I'm really excited about this next conversation because when I teach church history to my students, this is the century that they're probably the least familiar with and that and most intrigued by. Uh, the second century, right after the apostolic era, so much happens there. Right. And I think the temptation for myself teaching theology is to gravitate to the third, fourth, and fifth centuries. Right, where these controversies take place, this is these where councils. The, this is where controversies that are more thoroughly documented explode and ecumenical councils are called and creeds are finally uh, set and established. Right. Uh, and it can be easy as a theologian to look at the second century and think that was still the nascent era of the right. church where basically you have pastoral concerns up until about the middle of the century. Then you have this explosion of apologists in the latter half of the century and some persecution and yep. What more was happening in the second century that actually established the identity of Christianity? Right. So our next guest is going to inform us of all these things. He's just written a great book. Uh, Michael Kruger is the president and professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's written actually a number of things on the canon of scripture and the early text of the New Testament. But this book is called Christianity at the Crossroads, How the Second Century Shaped the Future of the Church. Michael Kruger, thanks for joining joining us today. Well, thanks, guys. Great to be with you. So, I wanted to just ask, in, in an overall sense, what are some of the big developments in the second century? We, The apostolic era has ended. Uh, we're in the 100s. And what are some of the big things that do happen between that apostolic era and these councils that we're familiar with, Council of Nicaea and other things that happen later? Well, yeah, just in your introductory comments there, you guys nailed it in terms of the significance of the time period. It's kind of this wedged-in time period where as you noted, the apostles are now gone, but yet the church hasn't quite sort of stood on its own two feet very much yet. So the analogy I give in the book is it's sort of like this newborn animal on the Serengeti Plains. I mean, you're, you're wobbly and shaky and vulnerable. And um, mm-hmm. that was really what the, the church was feeling in the second century. And what, it's hard for us to appreciate that because we look back retrospectively and see the church now, 2000 years later, and how big and massive it is just in terms of numbers and in history. But from a human perspective, it wasn't all clear that they were going to make it. Um, now, from a divine perspective, of course, it was clear God had promised. But from a human perspective, things weren't settled or set up or established in the way they are now. And so I think that's very helpful for the readers just to sort of transport yourself back and realize, wow, this this was really a time period where things weren't fully determined yet. And, and, the, and the way I say in the book is the second century was a period of transitions. It was the church facing these different transitions that would determine its future for the next 2,000 years. And some of those were theological transitions, some of those were cultural, political transitions, and, and the like. And those are just big moments, and we, we take them for granted now, but at the time, they were, they were monumental. What are some of the maybe cultural or political transitions? How does the fortunes of the church either experience excessive threat or even a breakthrough in the second century? Yeah, well, I think the the best way to appreciate that is just how it differs from the first century. Largely speaking, and there's some exceptions to this, largely speaking, Christianity was not really on the radar of the Greco-Roman world in the first century on a political level. In other words, other than the narrow incident with Nero, which gets a lot of press, 
Christians were seen more as just a subset of Judaism for the most part. There wasn't a sense from the Greco-Roman world's perspective that they were a distinctive entity. And that started the change in the second century. And one of the reasons it started the change is just the, the massive conversion levels of Gentiles. I mean, the church had become largely Gentile by the time the second century rolled around. And for that reason, Christianity was spreading into all these nations and all these ethnic groups and all these municipalities that Judaism never really was in. And so the Greco-Roman world began to notice. And when they noticed, they didn't like what they saw. Because for the most part, Christianity was, was taking Greco-Roman citizens and, and making them in their minds, atheists who refused to participate any longer in the worship of the Roman gods. And that upset the Greco-Roman world because for them, worship of the Roman gods was your civic duty. That's what you did as a good Roman. You, you did that to uphold the integrity of the nation. And so Romans were seen as basically haters of humanity and disinterested in the welfare of their fellow men. And so it was a very big sort of political moment for them to figure out whether they were going to back down from their exclusivity or, or stay true to it. Is there controversy in the church itself on how to deal with this newfound political pressure. Now they're on the radar. Now their presence is known, felt, and as you mentioned, opposed in some important respect. What sense do we get as to how the church itself processes this new relationship? I'm thinking in our own modern day, there are vastly different Christian conceptions as to how we as Christians ought to relate to the state. Uh, Do we fully acquiesce and get along or how resistant are we? Do we find those same kind of struggles in the second century or are they generally generally agreed on how to handle this newfound pressure? I think you see them. It's just not as plain. Um, you know, our, our data is as well known. It's just thinner in the second century. We don't have as many source documents as we wish we had, but there's a couple of places that plays out. One is just the exclusivity of early Christian worship. What happened is a lot of these people who converted to Christianity had grown up their whole lives in a polytheistic world. And, you know, in some sense, they convert and overnight, they're now worshiping Jesus and only Jesus. And although many did that, some struggled with that. And so you have some that survived politically and culturally by sort of playing both sides. They would kind of still probably drink libation to the gods, but yet then still profess faith in this Jesus guy. And so some Christians were inconsistent. But I will say that most stood firm and most were faithful. And so this was really the rise of the apologists in the second century, the golden age of apologetics. And they represent the dominant Christian response. And the dominant Christian response was vigorous. It was confident. It was saying, look, we're not budging here. We're going to worship Jesus and worship him only. And and all these gods you guys worship aren't real gods anyway. They're man-made false gods. And so it was a bold move and it and many lost their lives as a result. Are we able to say, especially with regard to the arguments of the apologists, and I think probably Justin Martyr looms largest in our minds among those, are we able to say how much of their argument was really adopted by the church. And I think of Justin's apologies, his dialogue with Trypho, and then his first and second apology against the Greeks. How much of that way of thinking sort of finds its way into a general Christian outlook or argument? Or are we even able to say? Well, if your question is, how much of the apologetic rhetoric represents the average Christian on the street, it's almost impossible to know. We don't know much about anything as it pertains to the average Christian on the street, because the only things we know about Christianity, for the most part, are by the people who write down treatises and theological works, which tend to be the leaders and the educated ones. So, you know, is that representative? All we can do is sort of make a general assumption that it is. I will say this, though, that on an apologetic level, there is a monumental amount of consistency across the board in the second century about the kind of arguments being made and the kind of defense that Christians are offering. 
uh, and the kind of complaints that they're registering to the political realm. That, I think, shows you that it was pretty consistent the, the kind of things Christians were saying and doing. And so it does does suggest at least a, a good deal of uniformity about the way to engage in these discussions. So there isn't a five views book on apologetics in the, <laughs> in the second century. No, no five views, no deep reflections on methodology. It was more just do it. And part of it was occasioned by the moment. In other words, part of the apologetics was simply doing away with misconceptions. Part of it was just like, look, you know, we're not bad citizens. We pay our taxes. We do our part. Why are you on our case here? Part of it was lobbying for fair treatment from governing authorities. Part of it was, yes, a polemic against other religious systems. I will say this as far as apologetic methodology. I was impressed by how much the Christian apologists of the second century went after the pagan religions on a philosophical level. They, they did the reductio ad absurdum, if you will, on non-Christian thinking quite quite vigorously. And so, you know, you could say that probably tells you something about some ways of doing a Christian apologetics. And then other types of Christian apologetic methods would probably make us cringe a little bit. We would think, Ugh, not sure that's an argument I want to use. But uh, regardless, they, they were in the throes of it and willing to put up a fight. What do we know about the makeup of the earliest Christians in the 100s from a kind of sociological perspective. Some people, I think, envision Christianity rising just among the lower classes. Some people envision it being kind of learned. And we just talked about the apologists who are obviously in many respects learned men. So what do we know about the, the sort of makeup of the early church right after the apostolic era? Well, actually, this is one of the areas I found most intriguing was asking the question, who exactly are the earliest Christians? And we don't tend to ask the question that way. Typically, we ask, what do Christians believe? okay, fair enough, or, or maybe what they do, but we never ask who they were. And when I say who they were, like what kinds of people became right, Christians? Right. And what's interesting is to know that, that Christianity tended to transcend sort of three different cultural socioeconomic boundaries that typically were, were not crossed in the ancient world. One, of course, is the boundary of nations. In other words, one of the things that made Christianity interesting and threatening, actually, was that it was a transnational religion. And what that meant is, it was not a religion that was cordoned off and restricted to one people group. You know, Judaism believed a lot of the same things, of course, that Christians believed, but they didn't receive the attention from the Greco-Roman world precisely for this reason. They were not seen as transnational. They, they weren't getting converts from all these different groups. And that was a big difference for Christians. They were for every ethnic, every uh, geopolitical entity. And so they were for all people. That was one notable. Secondly, is that, as you mentioned there, the, the socioeconomic notability. I mean, Christians were rich and poor. They were educated, uneducated. They were slave and free. They cut across cultural boundaries in an unprecedented fashion. So now you have people worshiping together in one congregation that, that you have an aristocrat and a peasant together, and this created problems. It created challenges. You know, a lot of the religions in the Greco-Roman world just didn't do that. Um, and then thirdly, gender. I have a whole section in my book on, on the popularity of Christianity among women in, in the early centuries, and it was quite popular. In fact, best we can tell, about two-thirds were women. And so that was another boundary cross. A number of Greco-Roman religions were only for one gender, particularly a male gender. And so that made Christianity distinctive as well. So it's it's demanding exclusive worship of Jesus. You can't mix Jesus and your pagan gods that you grew up with, but yet it's crossing all these other boundaries within the church. Yeah. In fact, the, the way I describe that, I don't actually put it this way in the book, but I, but I do say it in, in lectures. The way I describe it is that Christianity manifested the proper form of, of inclusion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, people talk about how we want to be inclusive in our world today. And, and, and typically that word has been so twisted and, and distorted that it doesn't mean anything like it would have meant. I mean, now when people say you should be inclusive, they mean have no conviction, 
right. believe everything and, and tell no one they're wrong. That, that's not what was meant by early Christian inclusivity. To be inclusive for Christians wasn't about compromising your convictions. It was about recognizing that this religious system, this thing we call Christianity is for everyone. There is no one who's barred from it. There's no one it doesn't apply to. It's for every race, every gender, every socioeconomic status. It's for everybody. And that was revolutionary. Now, what's their relationship at this point to the Bible? You talk about a textual culture in the second century and the scriptures in the second century. I think Larry Hurtado refers to Christianity in the second century as a bookish religion. So what's the relationship of the typical second century Christian and the New Testament documents? Yeah, well, here, here's where I wrote a couple of different chapters addressing the literary culture of early Christianity. And, and part of what I wanted to accomplish there was to do away with a number of misconceptions that have been floating around out there. Part of these come from modern scholarship. Some of them just exist in the broad psyche of people when they think about early Christianity. And that is this idea that earliest Christians were more orally focused. They were more of an oral religion, an oral culture. They were just all about telling stories and passing down tradition and it wasn't until much later, maybe the fourth century or, or beyond, where they started paying attention to books and thought maybe we need a canon and then pick books to be in it. That whole line of thought is, is pervasive and I think fundamentally in error. In this book, I argue that from the very beginning, Christianity was textually centered. They had the Old Testament writings as their first base for that, where they were bookish in that sense. But then they began to write their own stuff and write it very early. And then they wrote a lot. They wrote, they copied. They have their own distinctive book technology. The evidence for the, the literary culture of Christianity was phenomenal, actually, when you start really diving into it. And what's interesting is that all this happened, even though most Christians couldn't read. Now, people hear that and think, oh, you know, those Christians are a bunch of backwater yokels anyway. No surprise, they're uneducated. But actually, that's, that's not true for Christianity only. Everybody was like that. No, there's hardly anybody in the ancient world that could read. I mean, maybe 10 to 15% of the population could read. And since Christianity was pretty representative, they had the same problem. But Here's the thing, they could still be textual even though most couldn't read because they still based all their teaching, all their instruction off of books. And that, that's what made them unique. What sort of Christian literature is emerging? I mean, some of it we know from the late apostolic fathers at the early part of the century and some of the material we have from the apologists. But what other kinds of literature? When I think of the second century, I usually think, apologetic literature and sort of um, pastoral letters and manuals, but what kind of literature is emerging during this century? Well, certainly you hit on two of the big ones. We have a lot of apologetic works, and we have a, a lot of works that fall under the umbrella of the apostolic fathers, as you put it, church manuals and letters and these sorts of things. We have other stuff too. I mean, one of the big dominant forms of literature is, is what we would call just theological treatises, many of which are anti-heretical treatises. Think about Irenaeus' Against Heresies as a classic example, you know, this sort of massive five-volume work that represents the kind of writing going on during this time period. There's also martyrdom accounts during this time period of, the, of people who are persecuted and killed. There's sermons and commentaries that we have different written forms of. And then, of course, as I, I spent a lot of time also in this area of apocryphal literature, and apocryphal literature are, are books that kind of look like the books that made it into our New Testaments, but never did. I mean, there are later productions. And so we have apocryphal gospels, apocryphal acts, and apocryphal revelations and letters. And some of these are heretical, but others of these are just, you know, books that didn't make it in the New Testament. And so that was a pretty dominant form of writing. So Christians wrote, and they, and they wrote a lot. But I noticed that you left off the list 
Christian romance novels. Uh, and well, that, that's a, that's just, a modern day uh, okay. um, literary I'm, invention. I I'm think. scouring <laughs> the index here, and I'm I'm coming up empty on that. So, Although, uh, so I will say cover this. everything. I will say this: that the apocryphal acts were pretty close to that. Okay. <laughs> um, these are in the form of what we would know as Hellenistic novels, which of course aren't romance novels, but often in the Hellenistic world actually did have a romance in them. And we're just sort of, you know, adventures that people would go on. And there's good evidence that the Apocryphal Acts were patterned after the Hellenistic novels. So there's a, there's a little bit of that. So there's there. a precedent for the modern Christian romance novel. Uh, I think so. It's not a good precedent, <laughs> no. but it's, it's a precedent. <laughs> this is not advocacy. Yeah, exactly. We're <laughs> simply observing what's there. We're not <laughs> saying it was right or wrong. So last question. One of the things that I think students today that I've interacted with have felt, and this, this may not be entirely accurate, but I think they, they feel this way, that when they come to the second century and the church in the second century, there's a sense in which they think there are very important, maybe increasingly important lessons for our churches today because Christianity is more and more in our culture seen as weird. And, And of course, in the second century, it was also seen as very weird. I'm wondering about those parallels. I mean, are there things that we can learn from the lives, the worship, even the progress of the second century Christians that we can sort of apply or or take note of for our experience of Christianity today? Yeah, in fact, many things. And actually, when I wrote the book, this is one of the areas I was sort of most surprised by. I think we all would agree that any phase in church history applies to the the present, right? We always take lessons, pick a century, we could find a lesson to learn. Okay, fair enough. When I wrote this book, though, I wasn't really thinking in those categories. I was thinking more in the categories of scholarly discussions and sort of people and ideas and things like this. And what struck me as I was writing the book was how parallel the experience of second century Christians is looking to the experience that we're beginning to have in our modern day. And what I mean by that is that we are beginning to experience, at least in America in the present, what it looks like to be a religion in a, where you're a cultural minority. You're, you're not in power. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not the main influencer. In fact, on the contrary, you're, you're seen as peculiar, odd, and really a threat to the stability of the state. That feeling is new in America. And in the last 10 years, we've all started to felt it. We've all started to feel it more, and we're going to feel it even more, I think, in the years to come. But what's interesting is that most of the rhetoric in America today has been, oh, how new this is. And, and it is new in America. But what I'm, I want people to see from this book is that it's actually not new in the history of, of Christianity. This is, to feel that way is par for the course. And, and the second century Christians are a great mirror for us to look into and see a reflection back of ourselves and how we should think and act and be and what it looks like to stay faithful in the midst of a hostile world. And, and how to just keep pressing on with worship, even though the world thinks you're odd and strange and not compromising, even though there's a high price to pay. And I, I think those are just great lessons from, from the second century. And, you know, if, if we had wrote a book a, a hundred years ago in America about church history, people would have felt probably they could relate more to the fifth century or fourth century. Mm-hmm. But now I think we can say, no, it's really the second century that probably has the most to teach us. And I think there's a lot there for the church to say, look, here's the theological core. Here's the things we're committed to. Here's what it looks like not to compromise. Here's what it looks like to engage. There's a lot of takeaways that I think most people will get, I hope, from a book like this. Well, hey, thanks for giving us your time today. We really appreciate it. And thanks so much for your labors on this book and other books as well. Can't commend it highly enough to our listeners. Um, Michael Kruger, thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Fun conversation. Yeah, so what he said at the end is really what caught my attention from the very beginning. I don't know why it is, but I think our students, and, and I feel this way as well, sense that there is some commonality 
between the situation as it increasingly presents itself in America right now and the second century of the church. And that call to exclusivity is so important today. I think I remember hearing Carl Truman say this a a few years ago, that more and more as our culture becomes not just more secular, but more overtly hostile to Christian virtue and conviction, that we're going to find ourselves opposed by the state, perhaps in our own version of it, not offering libation and worship to the emperor, not joining in the current cult as it is defined by the state and by the culture, and to realize that we're not the first Christians to pass this way, and that we don't have to, for the first time ever as Christians, think about how we're going to exist in a world hostile to us. First of all, it's not, I mean, in a certain sense, it's new for us in the West. But, of course, there are Christians all over the world who have never been in a culturally favored position like we have in the West. So that in a certain sense, for some Christians, the second century, so to speak, has always been more normal to them uh, than it has for us. But I think uh, Dr. Kruger speaks to our situation, particularly in the West, as we find ourselves increasingly cast as the opponents of a new virtue and a new form of ethics uh, that is contrary to our faith. Yep. And if you, as a listener, if you are unfamiliar with this period of church history, as I think many people are, or even if you're familiar, I mean, this is just a good book to add to your library. It's called Christianity at the Crossroads, How the Second Century Shaped the Future of the Church. And actually, we'd like to offer you the opportunity to win a copy of this book. If you go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, you can enter your name for the opportunity to get a free copy of Michael Kruger's Christianity at the Crossroads. We're grateful that you listen to us, and we are especially grateful when you give us feedback, recommend us to friends and family who might be helped by it. And if you're able to donate, we rely on the donations of listeners like you. So if, you, if you're able to do that, you can go to AllianceNet.org and click on the donate button or PlaceForTruth.org, click on the donate button. And we're glad you listened to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.